In the beginning, the earth was a dark, empty blob. God spoke and created the entire world. Light, sky, fish, birds, and animals. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image, and created man out of dirt. And the man became a human being named Adam. After six days of work, God took a rest. God then put Adam in a garden where there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam, eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, you will die. Eventually, God caused the man to fall asleep, took out one of his ribs, and created a woman who Adam named Eve. God joined Adam and Eve together in marriage. Later, a serpent came and convinced Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying they would become like God if they did. Eve took a bite, and then so did Adam. Because of this choice, God cursed the serpent as well as Adam and Eve and forced them out of the garden, away from the tree of life. Outside the garden, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. When they made sacrifices, God accepted Abel's sacrifices of animals, but not Cain's sacrifice of crops. This made Cain so angry that he murdered Abel. People began to populate the entire earth, and wickedness and tragedy continued to spread. God was sad and regretted ever making human beings, and decided to wipe them from the face of the earth. But God found one man, Noah, who walked faithfully. So God instructed Noah to build a giant boat called an ark and to take his entire family along with a male and female of every kind of animal onto the boat. For 40 days it rained and the entire earth was flooded, wiping out every living thing, plants, animals, and humans, all of it destroyed. Eventually, the flood stopped and the ark came to rest on dry land. Noah and his family came out of the ark and God made a promise that the entire earth would never again be completely flooded. God put a rainbow in the sky as a reminder of this promise, and God looked for someone who God could use to bless the entire world. So which Bible verse do you think is the most memorized verse in Scripture that, like, People, Christians know, and also non-Christians many times know. What do you think is the most memorized verse in the Bible? In the beginning, that, that, that's, that could be one. That could be one that people know. What's a verse uh, from, let's say, the Gospels? It's very popular that people know. John 3.16. I was hoping that someone would guess that, because that's what I have here. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this verse, of course, speaks of God's great love for us and the extent to which he went to have a people for himself through sending Jesus. But I want you, I want you guys to memorize a new verse, to, to be just rebels and memorize a different verse from the Bible. And the, but it's another 3.16 verse. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 The reason why reading the Bible together is such a big deal is that only in reading and understanding the Bible and the story of the Bible will we know for sure about God's heart towards humanity and what God desires to do in humanity. Without the revelation given to us in the Bible, we cannot know the extent to which God will go in order to have a people for himself. We don't see the story of what, of what he did to get a people for himself. And we also won't know the extent of God's mercy and grace when dealing with people that he has freely given to us in Christ. If we don't read the Bible, we can't be in touch with these things. A friend of mine asked me this week, uh, what was the most surprising thing that really impressed me on my sabbatical? And it, like in a spiritual sense, what was the most spiritually um, surprising thing that happened? And the answer I gave him was admittedly a really weird answer for someone who's a pastor to give to someone. And actually, the person I was talking to was also a pastor. <laughs> so he probably, I didn't know what he thought of this answer, but I thought about it. And I told him that the most surprising thing for me during my sabbatical was that I encountered God's presence most deeply while reading through large sections of the Bible. It's, it's an amazing book. Um, being immersed in the scripture draws you near to God in an amazing way, in the way that the Holy Spirit uh, works, because it's God-breathed, because it's completely useful for speaking to us and giving us guidance for life, like, like 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Um, reading the, the, the written word of God, when the Spirit stirs on that text, uh, gives us this picture of who God is and what God is doing in the world. I also, another reason why this was so impactful for me at this time was because I could see how, see very clearly how merciful and gracious God is with people. That was a huge impression. God uh, dealt with people in the scripture who were often faithless or of little faith, who were inconsistent many times, not to, not to mention downright rebellious and sinful in their hearts and, and wayward from God. And seeing God and how he, how he, related to people, like, like Adam, like Noah, like Cain, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Elijah, and Solomon, and David, and the disciples. Seeing how God relates to these people, we see that God is a God who is willing to work with people who, are str who struggle, and who don't get it right, and who often get it wrong. And that is, in fact, our namesake. You know, we are named uh, Israel, is the name that God gave to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord until morning and finally was overcome by the angel. But Israel means fighter of God. That's what it means. That's our heritage. People that struggle, that fight, that are not always perfect, but who are recipients of uh, the mercy and grace of God. When I look into my own heart, you know, I see someone who sometimes feels that they are wholeheartedly following after God. Whether that's true or not, objectively, I don't know, but sometimes I feel like my heart is right, really in the right place. But sometimes my heart is rebelling and moving in the opposite direction from God. Um, I see in myself someone who is often confused about my identity, who often moves and makes decisions based on the confusion that sin has brought into my life. Um, in the end, one of the most important messages of the Bible is that none of us can save ourselves or make ourselves into the people of God. Only our loving God can do that, and only through the work of Jesus on the cross. The good news for you and I as we follow God in our day is that 
Just as God was merciful and gracious to the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so God is merciful and gracious towards us as well, towards sinners like you and I who are confused. When we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ rather than on ourselves, we can live a different kind of life thanks to God. And as we do this, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see the story that God is telling through our lives intersects with that larger story that he's telling in his word in the Bible. And, and the larger story that he's telling us, he redeems creation and bring, makes all things new. So in the Old and New Testaments, we can see clearly um, a couple things happening that's, that's brought up in, in our uh, book, The Story. Um, there is what is called a lower story. That's what the author of the story calls it, the lower story. And that is all that happens on the earth. Everything that happens on the earth is part of that story. But there's also an upper story, which is God's eternal plan being worked out through the lower story of what's happening on the earth. God has a, a larger story. He has purposes, as we saw in our psalm this morning, that will prevail. They will always prevail. And he works that story into our lives, into the very mud and, and earthiness of our lives. And as we make our way through the Bible, we're going to be looking at this lower story, the story of history, but also looking at the upper story in order to capture a vision of life with God and to practice seeing our lives in light of the story God is telling us, is telling in the world. How to see our lives in light of that story and join in that story. In Genesis 1, we see the, the creation story where God forms the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Everything we see in the world, you know, even in this advanced stage of decay and death that our world is in right now, um, was originally created by God and formed by his hand as an environment for his people to dwell within. That's why God created the world. That's why he formed, uh, formed land. And the whole point was on day six, God made his, his crowning achievement, which was humankind, mankind, in his image, male and female. God creates man and woman and gives them a very unique job among the other things God has created. We're going to pick that up in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. It will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Humankind was God's crowning achievement, his, his, his creatures made in his very image, who he appointed to co-regent, co co-create with him in the world. God's desire in, in all of this is to dwell with the people he created and to invite them to join with him in the act of his work, of ordering creation, of naming animals, of even creating their own little people, uh, their own babies to God's glory. This is, this is really an astounding thing to think about, that not only, were, not only was the whole world created as a habitat for humans, 
But God made people in his own image, both male and female, and then he encourages them to join with him in his work. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I cannot make a boulder appear by saying, you know, let there be boulder, but I can join in to work in the world where I, where I partner with God in, in creating something. And in, 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 uh, I could, you know, me and my wife partnered with God and created children, for instance. That's my creation, but it's God's creation. I get to be a parent. I get to cultivate my children's lives and to, in a way, um, represent God to them, you know, as God himself reveals himself to my children. Now, this is an amazing thing. And it says something really amazing about God, which is unique among the religions of the world, which is that God desires to be with, to dwell with his creation, and he desires to, to, uh, to be a co-worker, a co-laborer with his creation. It says in the word, we are co-laborers with Christ. It's just an amazing thing to consider. So just as God created and tended to the world he made, he calls humans, uh, who it says are made in God's image, to cultivate, to rule over the animals, to plant the plants of the world. He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and increase in number. So I don't want us to take it for granted this morning that we have been, we have been gifted, we have been anointed by God as co-laborers with him. We can decide to have babies. We can name the animals, he says, uh, take authority over the animals. We can cultivate the earth and the seeds that God has given. You know, it's a huge deal. And that's still a mission that God has for his people, to cultivate the earth that he's given them, to co-create with him in the forms of families, in terms of the work that we do. Um, if you think about medical professionals who are working, working in their respective fields, you know, they are co-healing with God. God is the healer. They co-heal with God. What an amazing thing that is. What an amazing thing. Let's read on in Genesis 2, 8 to 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So this is the garden. This is the garden in Eden that God planted for human beings to dwell with. And so not only did he create the, the earth, but he created a special space for humankind to live and to grow. God caused special plants and trees to grow in this garden, and most of those trees were for food. But two trees stuck out and were different, and that was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No hauling of water was needed into this garden because God had a system of rivers that came in and watered the whole thing. It was all very lush. And in the midst of this captivating beauty, God gave Adam and Eve one command, 
and that was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they ate from that tree, they would die. Picking it up in Genesis 3, 6 to 10. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it, some, and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now let's, re- let's rewind one second. In God's amazing garden, in the Garden in Eden, it says in verse 8, following the disobedience of Adam and Eve, that the man Adam and his wife Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, which led them to hide from God in shame. But what does this tell us? It tells us that the sound of God walking in the garden was a sound that Adam and Eve knew well. They already knew that sound of God walking in the, in the garden. And under normal circumstances, on normal days, before the first sin in the garden, before shame entered the world, God came down to this place he created and fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. How else would they know that was God in the garden? This is just one small hint in the text showing us God's design and God's desire from the beginning that God would have a people for himself to dwell with. That's, that was the big thing that God was after. And, uh, and, and the, the big uh, part of the story, the, the big story that runs through the whole Bible is the story of God creating a people from himself, for himself and then redeeming them to be his inheritance. This is what God is after. But Satan tempted Eve, and then Adam disobeyed. They ate from that tree. And all of that sinless, joyful fellowship, without any shame, without any guilt, was broken by disobedience and sin. And even our job as being co-creators with God, alongside God, was severely harmed and shaken. Because how dangerous is the power of being a co-creator with God apart from God? Like, we're still people that are creative and called to work alongside God. But when when God's taken out of that picture, we can create all kinds of wicked and horrible things which is what we've done. But in all of this, God's desire was for his people and for people for himself. So reading on to the consequences in Genesis 3, 23, we'll start in 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and not take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This grand vision of God for this relationship with his people, to dwell among them, to collaborate and co-create with them and cooperate with them in in his purposes, symbolized by this garden in Eden, is wrecked by Adam and Eve's disobedience. And it broke the heart of God and, and caused God's people to be banished from the garden. And unfortunately, from that point, 
the wickedness in the world only got worse. There, over, over the entire world, wickedness uh, increases and increases in violence. And, and as we saw in our video, you know, the, the first children, the, one brother killed another. Cain kills Abel in cold-blooded jealousy. This is just a terrible, a terrible sign that when people separate themselves from obedience to God and they become outside of God's purposes, they still have this great power and influence, but disconnected from God, it becomes a very evil thing where even if you look at, uh, at Cain, he, he subdued his brother to death. <laughs> you know? He subdued his brother to death because of the increase of wickedness in the world. And it just kind of kept getting worse from here. As the increase of wickedness took over the world, God decides to take one righteous man that he found, Noah, and his family, and to start over. He found the best, most righteous follower of his, named Noah, calls him to build an ark to gather two kinds of every animal, um, because there's going to be a flood that kills everything except for Noah and his family. This is what's happening in the lower story. But the upper story, we see what's happening near the end of the story, is very interesting to behold here. After the flood, God put down his warrior's bow on the earth, called a rainbow. And it says in Genesis 9:11, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So Genesis 9-11, God puts down his, his warrior's bow, the, which call, we, we call the rainbow, and says, I will never destroy humankind. And directly after this, righteous Noah, our, the one holdout that was doing so well, took a turn for the worst. In Genesis 9-20-23, says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. So let's an analyze this story. It seems throughout this story that God is doing a reset of humanity, using the only man and his family that were not given over to wickedness, a man that the Bible calls righteous. And it looks like this story about Noah's faithfulness and righteousness is all about the goodness of Noah. But at the end of the story, we see that Noah's righteousness was really not enough to save anybody or to start a new humanity. It only lasted for a very short while after the flood. And the truth is revealed of Noah that getting back to the garden is not going to happen through the righteousness of a person. It's going to happen uh, through the righteousness of God. Even the most righteous man in the world cannot remain righteous for, for very long. How much more could anybody else? It's not about Noah's righteousness. It's about the faithfulness of God. So in creation, we see God's desire that he be in relationship with his people, dwelling among them, walking with them in the garden, where those of us made in God's image are called to be co-creators with him. You know, sin messed this up, God is kicked out of the garden, and even the most righteous man of his generation, Noah, was not able to reset humanity. God promised never to destroy the water with a flood again, but, he, but wickedness just started growing again in the world. How are we going to get back to that relationship with God we are destined for? 
where we can say to God, He is our God and we are His people. And the answer is found not in a righteous man, not a normal man, but only in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived out God's righteousness and went to the point of giving His life so that we could get back to the garden with God. We are still made in God's image, despite all of the sin that we are born into. Even though we may be bruised and broken by our sin, um, we are still made in the image of God, and we are still called to, be, to, to join with God in his act of creation, to subdue the earth, to order the earth, to, to have children, all of these things. They're still his desires. We've looked in Genesis to see the beginning of the Bible, but now I'd like to peek into Revelation 21, 3 to 4. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Continuing in Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's so interesting how that mirrors the first couple chapters of the Bible, and it's, it's on purpose. I hope you can see what God is doing in this. God's will has always been to get humanity back to a place of deep fellowship with himself, to a place of work in the land, that, in a land that responds perfectly uh, without any thorns or brambles to deal with. The Garden of Eden is not the last word for us, being banned from the Garden, because the second Garden of God in Revelation is coming. And for those who believe and trust in God, it's already here. You know, through Jesus' righteousness, we can all draw near to God in unbroken fellowship, unbroken fellowship, with hearts full of faith and expectation right now. We can do that. And we can begin to take back the mantle that God gave us originally to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over the earth, and to steward creation well, and to co-create with God on the earth. Now, for those who have eyes to see, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God has a destiny for each of us, and it is not to be banned from the garden forever. But the, but the garden that Jesus is making by his own body, uh, what, what Noah could not do, reset humanity, Jesus can do. He can reset humanity. He can reset your individual life. He can reset churches. He can reset families. And he can bring us back into the garden where we have that unbroken fellowship with God, where we hear his footsteps, so to speak, and we don't have to cower in shame because the blood of Jesus has washed away all of our sin. We can relate to God like we did in the beginning. And we can work with God like he intended to cooperate with him in the work that he's doing. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 11 
Uh, the church is arguing about who the best teacher is or whose disciple they are. And Paul says, what, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. This idea of co-laboring with God in his garden, planting, watering, but recognizing God is the one that makes it grow. By the grace given to us, we can go back to this Garden of Eden situation where we are walking before God blamelessly because we look to Jesus Christ as the total forgiveness of our sins. And then we can get to work. And whatever God's called us to, whether we are working in a school system, whether we're working in a hospital, in a church, in the Taco Bell, wherever you work, wherever, wherever it is that you are putting your hand to the plow, so to speak, that is a place where God calls you to join him in this act of creation, in this act of ordering and naming and subduing and ordering in Jesus' name, ordering, in, ordering for God. And again, as we do this work, this work of ordering, it's not the person who plants it or the person that waters, it's the one who makes it grow, God himself. Who is, who is the only one uh, to be praised in this situation. But God wants to get us back to that garden. He's called us to be co-creators and co-laborers in Christ. And for those who have ears to hear, we can experience a bit of heaven on earth before the day when God sets things right that we read in Revelation through looking to Jesus in humility and to deal with our sin problem and then joining in the work God has called us to do. This is the destiny of the children of God. So as we go through this, uh, through this study of the Bible, we're going to continually look at the history. We're going to be looking at the story of what, of what happened. And then we're going to be looking at what God's, God's purpose is being fulfilled through that. And through that, we're going to see our own story and our own lives in light of God's, what God is doing in the world. So I'm, really, I'm excited for that. I'd like to invite the worship team forward as we pray. Father God, I, I thank you so much for your word. We want to make it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we, we look to your word, Lord Jesus, for, for, for direction, for wisdom. We look to your word to point us to Jesus Christ, who has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And we look to your word to get back to the good work you've called us to um, before the time when sin entered the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would become full participants in your people, full participants of your kingdom not only bearing the family name, but doing the family business, doing the work that you've called us to together, that we would see a bit of heaven on earth in our own lives, in our own areas of influence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Sing with me.